welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're thrilled that you've taken some time to be with us today for a show uh, that has, as our guest, uh, a friend, an old friend, who is a new friend, and that is Mr. Dave Etter, former associate editor of Peterson's Bowhunting, back in another time and another world long before my time. Dave, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Thanks, Christian. It's a pleasure. You know, I say old friend and new friend because you're an old friend to the magazine, a new friend to me. I've been uh, here as the editor at Peterson's Bowhunting for almost nine years, and you were uh, associate editor at the magazine about 10 years before I arrived back in the late 90s uh, when the magazine was based uh, all the way across the country uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, tell me That's a little right. tell me a little bit about your time at Peterson's Bowhunting. What was it like back in the day, as they say? Well, it was uh, very interesting because it was in, in Los Angeles. I got the job because it was in Los Angeles because I worked for a different publisher uh, called Harris Publications at the time, and my boss was on the phone and I heard him say, there's no way in hell I'm moving to Los Angeles, but I know someone who might, and he turns to me and says, would you move to L.A.? And I said, sure. And uh, he puts, puts me online with uh, Jay Scrangis, who was the editor in L.A., and he invited me out to interview, and uh, it was I was lucky it was in L.A., because not a lot of bow hunters wanted to live in Los Angeles. Yeah, well... And it was a really bizarre uh, place to have some of the coolest outdoor hunting titles, and, and um, it was a really neat experience, though, to move to L.A., because... Normally, you know, it would take you forever to figure out how to bow hunt or is there any outdoor stuff in a, in a big city like that. But, you know, it was an entire floor in Los Angeles of all of some of the best hunters and fishermen. And I was kind of new out of college. And, you know, it was, uh, for me, just a kid in the candy shop the minute I arrived. And um, actually, it was really neat when we got there. I was an East Coast uh, New York State bow hunter with 120 yard pin on my on my uh, bow, and Joe Bell, who was an editor of Peterson's Hunting, said, "Hey, uh, welcome. You want to come bow hunting with me?" And I said, "Yeah." He's like, "How how far are you dialed into?" And I'm like, "Well, I got my 20 yard pin pretty tight." He's like, "Well, you're not coming with me until you're good at until you're good at about 60 yards." And I thought, as an East Coaster, you don't hunt you know hunt that far, but it's so wide open in Los Angeles, uh, up in the hills of Pepperdine. Um, that you had to do spot and stalk, and you had to get really good. And we didn't end up shooting at sixty, but all the shots were forty, so you had to feel really confident. And uh, but it was an amazing. It was amazing because you never felt when you got there, you immediately were entrenched with other hunters, so you didn't feel like a fish out of water being in in Los Angeles. So, so you moved out from New York State to to L.A. Yes. Yep. And Backed you had- up. Where had you gone to school? I went to Union College, which was upstate New York. Um, and I grew up, my father was a big fisherman and, and not, a, not a big game hunter, but like hunting uh, birds and ducks and pheasants. And, um, you know, I was an English major in college at Union, and I had gone upstate because I loved trout fishing up there. And uh, my oldest brother had gone to North Dakota, and that's where he started bow hunting. And he then gave his used bow to my brother, who then loved it, and he gave me that bow, and I loved it, and I got into it, and we all just uh, became bow hunting fanatics. So, uh, so what was your first bow? Do you remember what it was? It was a bear, and I can't remember which one it was. I mean, Christ, because that was so many, many years ago. But that one bow got three of us set, and... Um, it was, it was, and that's what I always think is uh, you, most people have to get somebody to help them jump into it, you know? It's not a not a sport you can kind of just say, I'm going to start bow hunting today. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, I think, oh, 
you know what? It wasn't a bear. It was a golden eagle, I believe. But it's it's thirty years. I can't quite remember. Gotcha. So so anyway, so right after college, you pretty well moved out there, and uh, you mentioned a couple people already. Obviously, Jay Strand, just longtime uh, Peterson's bow hunting readers will remember him because he was the editor actually up until the time that I started. Uh, he had left uh, shortly before I got the job, and that would have been back in two thousand eight. Uh, so he was he had a pretty good run, and um, Joe Bell, of course, went on to be the editor of Bow and Arrow Hunting, which uh, is no longer uh, in in business. And then Joe. Uh, had a stint uh, at the Pope and Young Club, and uh, so Joe is certainly no stranger to the world of bow hunting. Who are some of the other uh, names of our sport that you had an opportunity to work with and get to know during your time at Peterson's Bow Hunting? I, I imagine Jim Doherty would be one. Jim Doherty was there, uh, not in the offices, though, I don't think. No, um, but, but he was out in California, he, and he was writing for you guys, right? Right. Right, absolutely. And but in the office, uh, Greg Tinsley was a great friend uh, who moved on. I think he's now at Mossy Oak, but he was the editor of Peterson's Hunting for a long time. Uh, Kevin Steele was the editorial director, and I think he might still be over there. In yeah, some Kevin. Kevin still. Uh, yeah, Kevin's the publisher now of Peterson's Hunting. Yeah, so he was the editorial director back when. Uh, when I was there, and I'm trying to think who else that's still around. I can't. But it, but anyway, it was a great 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 opportunity to get to know more about the sport and get to know a lot of people in the world of bow hunting, anyhow, and probably see a lot of other crazy stuff. I mean that that building. I was never out to the LA office. It was closed before my time. But from what I understand, it was like uh, it's on Wilshire Boulevard. That's like right by Hollywood, right? Yeah, no, it was right by Hollywood. It was uh, a block away from Larry Flint's Hustler Building. Um, and it was a really wild place to have, you know, uh, hunting and fishing magazines. And, and, you know, we were, at any given time, you'd, you'd go from the beach to uh, to skiing. You could do within a couple of hours on any given day in the winter. Uh, it's really a neat place to be. And Peterson's at the time just got bought by a leveraged buyout group uh, from... Bob Peterson, and so it was going through the transition of being an entrepreneur's kind of business to, you know, owned, and then it went public when I was there, I think, uh, as well. So it was big transitions, uh, but, you know, we had in-house photo departments, and it was really a great operation uh, when I was there. Yeah, and that was the days, of course, before... uh a lot of outdoor television and, and certainly, you know, all this on-demand video content that people can find, you know, on the Internet today. So, you know, magazines, while, you know, were still very relevant at that time, you guys were, were really the big dog in the space and, and actually, uh, you know, probably the, the best and one of the few really uh, good ways for avid bow hunters to get a steady stream of, of information about new products tactics, shooting techniques, and all that stuff. Yeah, it was, It was, and we really differentiated. It was a battle between Bow Hunting and Bow Hunter magazine, which at the time were owned totally separately. And Bow Hunter was the first magazine and had a had a little bigger reach and then we eclipsed them when I was there primarily because we really were focused on products and real product reviews and it was the differential was one was a little bit more hunting tactics and one was a little bit more technical and uh, it was really you know back then that's almost 20 years ago that was really the explosion of the new bows were so different you know the solo cam which just in. There was so much innovation that uh, it was exciting to be a part of it. And like you said, we were the only avenues. There wasn't anywhere else. So it was actually a very humbling lesson to learn because as, as an associate editor of one of the biggest bow hunting magazines, you know, people were calling me, sending me gear to review, taking me on hunting trips all over the place. And I, I was sort of like... 
ultimately I left to start my own online magazine and what morphed into an online retailer. But when I left, it was like, people love me. They're going to be so excited to participate in my new venture. And I kind of quickly after leaving realized, I think they might have loved my role as opposed to me because no one's calling me back anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's weird. PSE just took me three bucks. Now they were but uh, it was really exciting because it, it wasn't diminished uh, by, by every avenue out there. It was it was a real, if you wanted your stuff, uh, if you wanted people to learn about it, you had to get into Bow Hunter or Bow Hunting Magazine. That was really your, your only way to get it out there. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, even today, as you alluded to, you know, and, and a lot of people, even people listening today might not realize, you know, through uh, a, a various transactions, you know, today, Outdoor Sportsman Group, which is our parent company today, Bowhunter and Peterson's Bowhunting, which are the two largest bowhunting magazines, you know, that are out there, we are owned by the same company now. We have completely different staffs, and we operate independent of one another, but, uh, you know, there's a certain collegiality uh, that exists between us. Certainly, we know each other, uh, and we're friendly. It's funny to think that back in, in your day in the late 90s, and really from the time that Peterson's Bowhunting started in 1988, 1989, you know, that was the big rival. And from what I understand, you know, there really was, you know, a, a pretty intense rivalry back in that in the day as Peterson's Bowhunting grew and found success and established its footing, you know, in the industry and really became the major competitor to Bowhunter Magazine. But also what you talked about, the differences between the titles, which remains to this day. You know, as you said, Peterson's Bowhunting was always focused on the technology and the innovation and the new gear and product reviews and kind of staying on top of like the latest and greatest. And we continue to do that right to the present day. And that's our heritage as a magazine. And Bowhunter is a little bit more, as you said, it's, it's focused more on, uh, I always call it the spirit of the hunt. You know, they've got more hunting stories in there and they talk about the heritage of our sport. Bowhunter does things with traditional archery, which we really don't do any of. And we do things with crossbows, which Bowhunter really doesn't do any of. So even today, there's very, very much uh, a unique identity for what Peterson's bowhunting is out there in the marketplace. And that's kind of cool to hear, you know, that we've been able to maintain that over, you know, several decades and, and that you were a part of that, you know, and that's a legacy see that, you know, hopefully I'm doing a good job of carrying on here even today. Oh, absolutely. And it is neat because it's rare that you, you see two brands hold their course for that many years, 20, 30 years. Uh, and, you know, it's really neat, but it was, it was insanely competitive back in the day. I mean, because, you know, you imagine... Uh, it's sort of yeah, magazines like TV. You you get your ratings and you know how you did. It doesn't really matter uh, how you think you did. You get a report card. Exactly. Um, you know what your your subscriptions are and how many copies you sold on the newsstand and how many the other guy did. And I mean, truth be told, right? I mean, like you guys might not have known each other that well, but but you didn't necessarily always like each other, and you were trying to up, uh, you know outdo one another. And it, you know. It, Competition is good, right? It breeds, it breeds, brings out the best in everybody. Oh, it really did. I didn't even know those guys because I was, I was, like I said, pretty new uh, when I got in there. So I didn't even know them. All I knew them as was. <laughs> You know, it was uh, exactly it, it, so. It was, so Mr. James and Dwight Shue and those guys—they were they were kind of like the enemy, right? And you almost didn't want to know them. Yeah, yeah gotcha. You better and you know, but uh, like I said, it's at the same level. We're all both, right? and uh, we're all promoting the same sport. Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me before we move on uh, to your next chapter. You know, uh, is there a particular, uh, you know, couple of things that really stand out? Like you mentioned, the free gear. What was the coolest free? You know, maybe it was that first new bow that one of the companies sent you when you got the job or something, and maybe like the coolest trip or some experience you had out there in the field during your time at Peterson's Bow Hunting, where you were like, "Wow, this is you know, this is awesome. I'm living the dream." Well, there was, it was literally, uh, I'd say about 
I got to work, and my boss, Jay, was gone on a hunt for the first week. So I just kind of went at it. And I was, you know... It was, it was my third job out of college and from the East Coast, working hard and this and that. And uh, Jay comes back and I give him all the stuff I'd worked on. And he said, well, what are you doing today? And I said, I'm going to do this, this. I'm going to write an article. On the and he kicks his, kicks his legs up on his desk. He says, Dave, we're not going to have you working that hard over here. How about this? I think the first thing you need is to get a couple of bow racks sent to your office because you need to have at least 15 to 20 bows sitting in your office at any given time. So get some bow racks and start looking at what bows you want sent to you and start reviewing those. And I thought, this is heaven, right? I mean, like, <laughs> get, a, get a bow rack for 15 bows and get 15 bows in and start reviewing them. And I want, you know, like, I don't want you writing anything for a week. I want you shooting them, testing them, and then you can start writing. You know, and it was just, that to me, I thought this is, I mean, it was honestly like being 24 and being done. You found your best job you'll ever have. <laughs> Nowhere to go but down from there. Yeah, it really was. And I mean, you know, the hunts were all, I mean, fantastic to go on. But actually, hunts that you go on on your own are, are better, in my opinion, because, you know, there's always a little bit of work involved when you go on a work hunt, right? Even if it's a hunt, you're still kind of not exactly doing your own thing. I, well, I, there's, I an, still, there's an expectation there, right? I mean, you are yeah. working because you're taking notes and you're taking photographs or you're shooting video, and when it's all said and done, you're going to put an article together about that hunt, and it's going to include, you know, not only the adventure that you had, but some of the product that you used along the way and your success. So, yeah, it yeah. is. It's work. People think that all we do is we just we just wake up in the morning and go hunting, and isn't it wonderful, right? But there's actually a lot of responsibility that comes along with it. There is, and I know you guys continue it because I read the magazine. It's a, the other balancing act on, on the hunts is sometimes, you know, there's an expectation you have to let the guides know and everything else. Like, you know, look, this isn't good. It, it can't be just a free ad, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's just every angle. I always found it a little tough because there's always expectations you couldn't live up to. And so, I mean, I actually always preferred just flying home and hunting my regular trees with my own and hung my own stand and was in my own little place. And, and uh, um, actually, the other, I will tell you, the coolest hunt, we, we would hunt in Pepperdine, which is right off the Pacific Coast Highway. So it wasn't, this was just us hunting. And it was Joe Bell had taken me to this spot. And you would uh, hike up the mountain as the sun's rising. And you basically spot and stalk all the way up this hill. This and is mule deer? This is, uh, it was Southern California hybrids is what we call them. They're really kind of, they look like a small mule deer, but supposedly they've got black tail in them or something. So they were its own little breed of deer in Southern LA there. Uh, so we call them hybrids, but, um, so we would hike up this mountain and beautiful hunt over the Pacific Coast Highway, watching the Pacific Ocean, you know, and uh, we would walk after the hunt, after you hiked all the way up and you were done, didn't get anything, you'd walk this mountain bike trail and uh, to get back down the mountain, walking down the mountain bike trail, and I'll never forget it, Bruce Jenner bikes past us, and it was it was insane because this is one of the steepest hills you could ever imagine. And this guy bikes past us, and you, uh, well, it was Bruce Jenner, right? Not Caitlin, but he had full makeup on. And he's like, hey, guys, what's going on? You get one? And it was the most bizarre because it was, A, how are you not sweating? Because this is the steepest hill. I'm dying after walking it. <laughs> B, your makeup's not running. That's weird. And C, you're the only person in L.A. that isn't giving us a dirty look for hunting. Because literally everyone else you'd run past, you know, walk past or who'd see you hunting in Los Angeles would give you a dirty look. He, it was, it was, I'm like, oh, I looked at Joe. I'm like, only in L.A., right? Oh, we ought to get her on the line and see if she remembers this. Yeah, I, I would. Well, I'm sure she biked that all the time. I'm sure she saw hunters all over the place. Uh, but like yeah. I said, it was it was one of those neat things because you were just so used to getting scowled at, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not an easy place to be a to be an outdoors person, is it? 
No, no, not at all. But like I said, for me it was because I think if I had gotten a job anywhere else, it would have been miserable. But when, when you know, day one, you're sitting in an office with 50 guys who hunt. It actually ended up being a great place. Well, you know, it's really cool. It was really cool to hear you recall some of those experiences and the way that you felt about it. Because, you know, I went through a lot of the same things when I got this job nine years ago. You know, talk about dreams come true. But even more, what was going through my mind as I was listening to you share some of those stories is I recently hired uh, a new associate editor here. Just back uh, right before Christmas, I brought on uh, a young uh, woman... uh, uh, her name is Emily Kantner. Kind of cool because she's actually the first female full-time editor that we've had in the history of Peterson's bow hunting. Long overdue in my mind, because as you know, you, f- you know, female participation in bow hunting has really taken off over the last decade. But Emily is a, a very avid uh, bow hunter. Um, She's got, you know, she she had some good experience under her belt here in the east, you know, Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, whitetail hunting, but really had that same enthusiasm. And what a thrill for her. She was shooting um, a diamond bow that was probably, you know, six or seven years old when she got the job. And, of course, I told her, I'm like, you know, that's just not going to do right. I mean, we've got to get you set up with some newer equipment and uh, the latest and greatest. And she was, you know, of course, uh, had a pretty good smile about that and um, Botex sent her one of the new Eva Shockey bows and uh, she got to go to the ATA show you know this past January with us met all the manufacturers she's since gotten uh, several more bows I think an elite bow uh, and um, uh, I'm trying to think I think a prime bow as well so you know she continues to get this gear and she's gone on her first couple of hunting trips as a representative of the magazine she went to Kansas uh, back in uh, April and she doubled up on two big long birds with her bow the first morning out there and those were the first it was the first time she'd ever bow hunted turkeys and she killed these two great long beards the very first morning of the hunt within like two minutes of each other they came in together and she shot both of them and she was just on cloud nine and she texted me and she was like this is the best morning ever you know (laughs) and i just smiled because i remembered like wow you know like that first time you get to experience something like that and you're getting paid to do that it's so cool you know so be you know i hope that brings you some joy to know that there's still some younger folks coming up behind us that are experiencing you know the same thrills and growth both in the sport that we've had the opportunity to do. Oh, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so Dave, you you left Peterson's bow hunting, and then you started, like you said, you you started. Well, as you told me before, we started, you know, recording today. You thought you were going to do an online magazine, but what it actually evolved into is you started selling bow hunting gear on the internet. Yeah, exactly. We, you know, what Peterson's publishing at the time had was Motor Trend and scuba diving magazines and hunting and Peterson's hunting and guns and ammo and and the whole thing of it was you know they reached the whole male demographic and I, but you still had to buy separate ads to reach them because it was pre-internet. And so, in my grand scheme of things, I thought I'm going to start Peterson's Publishing, but just do it online, where one ad buy could reach everybody. And so we started with uh, a bow hunting magazine, uh, but it was online only, and basically found that we were way too early. This was 1998, and there was no way to sell advertising on the internet because most of the bow hunting companies didn't have even websites. So, uh, what we, as we were trying to sell ads, people said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to buy ads, but could you help us sell product? And, you know, you got to find a way to make revenue somehow. So we said, sure. And we just started listing various bow hunting products up for sale. And, and it turned out to be a great niche for the internet, which was, you know, it's a, it's three million plus really active bow hunters who want to buy stuff, but not really well served by local shops. A lot of times it's either a pro shops far away or doesn't stock a huge line of equipment. So it was sort of tailor made for the internet. And we immediately found quite a bit of success selling bow hunting equipment. We tried to do fishing and bra 
charter hunting markets and never really successful in that, but have really carved out a great niche and we're now the largest of the uh, e-commerce retailers uh, and, and uh, bull hunting and archery equipment and, and we've been doing it for 20 years now, almost. So, so what's, years. The, what's the website? It's edders.com is our main website. We also have bowhuntingoutlet.com. Gotcha. And, and so, uh, and so, what enables you guys? Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of options out there from from Cabela's and Bass Pro to you know a Lancaster Archery Supply to to just Amazon now. Um, right. How do you guys uh, remain viable here 20 years into the experience? Well, for for a long time, Amazon is the big issue now for us. Whereas for for 18 years, we were sort of the Amazon of bow hunting, meaning, you know, everyone has to find their niche in business. And for the most part, walk-in stores have never been my competition. And some may look at an e-commerce site as their competition, but it's not because walk-in stores can offer such a high level of service that no internet site can ever compete with it. There's not even, you know, you can't compete with a smile at the desk and good service. You know, people will overpay for that all day long and they will pay for service and that's something I can't offer. Right, well, and uh, the knowledge base, I mean, that's the bread and butter for an archery pro shop has got to be that knowledge base, whether it's, you know, just helping somebody to solve a tuning issue with their bow, you know, giving them a lesson that improves their, you know, shooting skill, whatever. Uh, that is, you know, what, like you say, that's what keeps people coming back to them. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, you know, what I've noticed over the years, there, from customers' feedback to just my own experiences, there, there are some shops that will take it, you know, if you go in and you bring in a bow that you bought somewhere else, they don't want to work on it, and they don't want to talk to you. And which is an insane yeah, idea. Just, it's because crazy. It's crazy. It's like, listen, I don't. I have never bought a new car in my entire life. But every time I've taken my car to a dealership to get it worked on, they were very happy to offer that service and charge me for it, and I was very happy to pay for it. So it's those guys that recognize that this is a service industry, especially in the retail level. Um, and even actually, if you look at clothing stores now, there's a lot of stores that are just, the storefront is just sizing. And they size up every shape and size of your legs, body, and then you only order this stuff online. So, you know, brick and mortar is has morphed into service, and that's not what I can compete with. Um, Cabela's, I think, had done a real disservice over the years. Uh, not a disservice. They went in a different direction, which was they went when we started 20 years ago to being a real competitor of mine, but they probably had five to 10% of their products was Cabela's branded equipment, mm -hmm. and they were selling everybody else's stuff. Well, they really started, you know, for lack of a better word, not knocking off, but making similar arrows, similar sites, similar clothing, and now they have a much higher percentage of Cabela's branded equipment, which I obviously don't sell, and so there is no competition there. Uh, if somebody has decided they want Cabela's stuff, they can go to Cabela's. But what my niche is, is we have between our distributors and manufacturers, drop shipping direct, we have the largest selection of bow hunting equipment at the best pricing. And that's why I say for years we were the Amazon, because Amazon didn't dip into our little niche, at least very deeply. They're starting to, so it, it, that will be a hurdle for me going forward. But our niche was we can't offer that service. We're not going to try to brand our own equipment. There is no Edders brand of you know, bows, arrows, anything. We're not doing anything other than if you saw an ad in Peterson's Bow Hunting or if you saw an article in Peterson's Bow Hunting, there's very good odds it's that product is at Edders and is at a really good price. And so that's our, our niche. Gotcha. Um 
talk to me a little bit. You know, it's not very often that I get somebody like you for an interview. Most of the time, I'm dealing with manufacturers, which is fine. But obviously, each individual manufacturer in the archery industry has a vested interest in their own line of product. As somebody who, um, you know, sells all their stuff, uh, this is a great opportunity for me as the editor of Peterson's Bowling and for our listeners, you know, I'm curious as to what you're seeing. What are the trends in the archery market out there? Uh, what seems to be popular right now? What what seems to be capturing the imagination of the bow hunting consumer in the marketplace, both in terms of the bows themselves as well as accessories, you know, broadheads and, and other types of things? Are there particular technologies or designs, materials that you see really uh, kind of uh, growing in the marketplace? It's not, you know, this, the last, I would say, two years, we had had phenomenal growth and phenomenal innovation for really 15, 20 years that I had been in it. And in the last couple of years, it's, you know, you hate to say it, it, the, it has teetered off a bit. Um, overall interest, it seems, or at least overall spending in archery, we've been able to buck that trend a little bit. Now, on the bow side of things, the biggest brands of bows are still pro shop only, meaning Matthews and Bowtech and, and those lines and Hoyt. You can only buy those through a pro shop. So we're probably the largest bow hunting retailer in the world, but we're not the largest seller of bows because we have a little bit smaller line of bows. Gotcha. But on the bow side, what's really been the biggest thing isn't just this year. It's the infinite adjustment bows, the the uh, diamond infinite edge, things like that, that, you know, can grow with the archer. You can get it for a younger guy and he doesn't need a new bow in a couple of years and can adjust it without a bow press. Um, and the other good thing about these super adjustable bows is it's not that... What, what I've noticed is with eBay and things like that, it used to be when you grew out of your bow or you wanted a new bow, it was garbage. You know, you couldn't, there wasn't really an avenue to sell it. Now you can now you can sell it on eBay and now you don't need to find someone who wants your exact draw length or draw weight because it's totally adjustable without a press. Yeah. So that's been a really big thing. But, well, you know, again, our customers being that I have large selection and good pricing, but we don't offer that. We're not setting up a bow for somebody. So our customers tend to be much more educated. We get the guys who've been bow hunting for five or 10 years. You know, a new guy is going to, like me, get a bow from his brother and be taught how to use it. And then when it's time to actually buy a bow, they've got to go to a pro shop. They don't know enough yet and haven't tried enough bows. So there's, you know, um, so kind of excuse my sample pool but what we've really noticed is guys do they they do their own research now they're watching all the tv shows they're listening to blogs reading the magazines and they're coming up with what they want and they want to get a bunch of stuff at the right pricing and they want it exactly how it is if you don't have the item black and silver instead of silver and black they don't want it yeah you know it, it's it's it's, um, used to call it, uh, I mean, it, it's basically everyone wants on-demand shopping right now, right? They want what yeah. they want, and they want it shipped fast. And Well, the consumers are very savvy now, aren't they? Because, you know, the blessing of the Internet for you is that it's allowed you to establish a, a viable business and make a living. But the downside of the Internet now is that there are no secrets pretty much in anything, are there? Because they can compare you to, you know, every single other online retailer out there, and they can do that in about two seconds. Yeah, it's a, it's a humbling business because I can look back over 20 years and see, hey, this one customer has always bought his arrows from us, but has never bought any broadheads from us, right? Yeah. And then you start realizing, well, we, we have the broadheads he's shooting. It's just there is no necessarily customer loyalty if you don't have that right pricing. And... Um, 
you used to be able to get away with marking up cheaper items like broadheads more than you could a bow. Like you had to mark up a bow almost as a lost leader to try to get somebody to buy it. But hopefully they don't price check the $25 broadheads. And now you're going to price check the $25 broadheads just as you would have price checked the $700 bow. Mm. And that's that's been a big change. And so margins across the board do come down. Um, and it, and it is humbling. I mean, it's actually fascinating. Amazon just announced they, they they put in for a patent that will allow stores to block customers from price checking on their phones or searching pricing on any web platform. I mean, wow. it's it's that dangerous for stores because I mean, my wife goes into a store and. You know, whatever it is she's before she buys it, she does a quick price check and she'll go to the counter and say, well, so-and-so has a online left. Will you match that price? I mean, that's brutal for retailers. It's, it's, it's brutal for everybody. Um, so, yeah, it's been a fascinating uh, to watch how it all evolves. For sure. Yeah. Now, and you mentioned, you know, you touched on something else, and, and again, I don't think this is any secret to those who are, you know, connected to the archery industry. We, the last two years, for whatever reason, you know, have not been stellar for the, for the bow hunting market as a whole. Um, and I'm curious if you, as a retailer, you know, have any thoughts as to what the reason for that is. Why, you know, as you said, why did we see that decade, decade and a half of, you know, growth and innovation and enthusiasm and then just kind of hit this lull the last couple of years uh, to the point that it left, you know, a lot of the, the major manufacturers in our industry with like double digit sales declines. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's to me very straightforward what happened. First, the growth of bow hunters stopped. So that's easy to see, right? Like it's okay. Um, that's kind of the most obvious, but there was not a double-digit drop in participation. It kind of flatlined a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe, as a retailer who sells 40,000 bow hunting and archery skews and has done it for 20 years and have, have watched it happen, um, there has been, by the manufacturers, uh, a race to increase margins dramatically for themselves, for retailers. You know, there's this thing called minimum advertised price where manufacturers want to say, no one's allowed to advertise this below this price, otherwise we'll cut them off. Right. Which is, it's actually, in some ways, you're allowed to have an advertised price, but you really can't say what somebody can sell it at. It gets to be a tricky kind of antitrust violation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason that is, is it's not necessarily good for consumers Right? The government didn't do it because they were just anti-business. They recognized that price fixing in any way does not help the consumer, right? Now, the next obvious step of that is if something doesn't help the consumer, it probably doesn't actually help the industry either then, because uh, you need consumer participation. And we've done a lot of stuff we have a huge email list where I ask people, and actually, if you posted on Facebook, which I did one time, uh, as to saying, what do you think's wrong with the industry? Mm-hmm. This is just from my customers. This is an industry guys. They're like, stuff costs too much money. You know, it used to be you could get a flipper rest and your, you know, a new site, a little stable, all these things weren't. Now, you, you know, when there's $300 sites and they're being billed as the only site to use, it's off-putting to a lot of us. Yeah. You know, um, you know, is a $1,000 bow that much better than the $350 bow? And... There's also a ton of choice and options that make it to wade through, but I really think it's the it's the size of the industry, and then you know there needs to be some recognition that I think what happened is as the industry grew, manufacturers said we can make a lot more money, uh, and we get, if we if we can make an extra ten dollars per site, that's how much more money we're going to get. And you realize, well, you know, you you can't squeeze water out of a rock at some point, you know. Uh, 
some of us have a, a set budget as to what we spend on our hunting stuff because we all have other passions too. Um, and kids and families and, you know. Uh, so I think that there's been actually a little bit too much price increasing uh, that's not necessarily commensurate with the quality that you get. I mean, right. the stuff out there now is better than it's ever been. I mean, it's awesome. But, um, you know, it's 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 hard on the on the on the consumer, and also right. it's like you know I think crossbows were really great, and in fact we own crossbows dot com, and we'll be launching a a, a pure crossbow website uh, in the next six months or so. But you know what I've noticed with customers with that is there's not all of the accessories for that. Right. So a lot of bow hunters bought a new crossbow, which was a big bump for our industry for a while. As every new state opened up, it was, wow, tons more crossbows and more broadheads. But guys don't practice with that as much. They don't tinker as much. You know, they it's, don't like, it's like a the, rifle, right? Once you've got your rifle, it's your favorite deer rifle and it's sighted in. Well, then how many times would you go out on opening day and you go talk to 100 hunters, 75 of those guys have probably been shooting that same rifle for 20 years, you know? That's exactly it. And that's kind of what guys do with the crossbow because they they perform. I mean, let's face it, right? I mean, it's a, it's a compliment to the manufacturers to say that today's crossbows, you go out and buy, a say, a $500 to $1,000 crossbow, it performs very well. It's very accurate. It's durable. And if you just give it some routine care and maintenance, there's no reason that you can't kill deer with that crossbow for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And and the other, it's more than just not buying that. You know, when I shoot my compound in the backyard and in the woods and blah, 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 I like playing around with can I hit something at 100 yards? And I miss badly, and my arrow... Oh, the arrow manufacturers love it when you do that, Dave. Yeah, and it disappears <laughs> under the leaves, and, you know, all this stuff. You know, with my crossbow, I've got it dialed in, and I don't practice with it all that much, and when I do practice with it, I you don't break your arrows and, or lose them as much, you know? Yeah. So it's... I think that has a little bit to do with it, but I do think it's just a, a general malaise. And, and also, finally, the last thing, when I got into the retail business of bow hunting, again, 20 years ago, uh, a manufacturer who's still around, they were called Western Rec uh, and Vista Outdoors, they make, and uh, Brothers Brad and Stan Love own, uh, own it. And, I'll never forget, they told me, you know, Dave, uh, our father was in this industry before us, and what you'll find is in, in good years, bow hunting drops, and you'll have your best years when there's a real economy. And I thought, well, that's, they said, well, you know, when you're really busy and employed well, you don't have as much to go hunting. Um, but on tough years and maybe there's not as much construction work or you're not working as much overtime or whatever it is you have a lot more time to go out hunting and you will buy more equipment <laughs> so it's counterintuitive and I remembered from a college course where, where they said a similar thing with women's cosmetics sell better in uh, downturns in the economy in the stock market because it's an easy way for women to feel a little better about themselves by putting on makeup or just and it's sort of I think the male version of makeup like Times are shitty. I'm going out hunting. I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to have fun doing it. And it doesn't cost a ton of money to do. So there is also, we're coming off of eight straight years up in an economy, which would, to what I was told 20 years ago and I found true, uh, usually the industry struggles a little after a long run of a good economy. And you hate to, hate to say it, but the you know, economy takes a dump. You're probably going to get a ton more people buying hunting equipment. Yeah, I, I, I want to hold on to that thought. I want to interject one thought that I have, and then I want to move on to segment three of our 
interview here and people stay with us here you don't want to miss because it's going to be really good but you talked about this race to the top if you will in terms of pricing and margin and you know that's something certainly that i'm keenly aware of as the editor uh, of peterson's bow hunting because of course um the manufacturers each year you know they've got their new their flagship bows the latest and greatest and most of the marketing budget is put behind the top tier of their product line so whether it's a bow company with their latest bow or a broadhead company that has you know a couple of new models for 2017 versus you know some existing models um you know that's always the desire right it's because the all the r&d money you know is tied up in those new products but when you look at the pricing you know you try to look at it from a consumer standpoint like you say you know if you look at the the most expensive bows on the market today you're looking anywhere from you know a thousand dollars at the low end for a flagship bow all the way up to probably fifteen hundred dollars at the high end so um and those are you know really good bows i mean if you asked me honestly uh you know if money was no object would you rather shoot the thousand dollar bow or the five hundred dollar bow well I want to shoot the $1,000 bow, but like you said, we all have budgets that we have to live within. we got to live within our means. Now, if you ask me another question, just phrase it a little differently and say, is the $1,000 bow, you know, twice as good as the $500 bow? I'd probably say, well, the $1,000 bow is better than the $500 bow. There's no doubt about it. You know, it's lighter. It's a little bit faster. It's a little bit quieter. But is it twice as good? You know, twice as good? If you're a bow hunter on a budget, I don't know if it's twice as good. Because the truth of the matter is, right, you can take that $500 bow and shoot it very accurately and kill anything you want to go hunt with it, probably anywhere in the world. Uh, You know, it might be a little bit heavier. It might be a little bit slower. It might be a little bit louder. But it will get the job done. And so... In spite of that, though, you don't see a lot of these companies putting marketing dollars behind, you know, those mid-tier products. But that's where, to me, you know, and it sounds like you were saying the same thing, a lot of the value in bow hunting equipment is in that mid-range product. Because that's where you see a lot of the technology and materials that were developed maybe three to five years ago that you're now getting, you know, at a fraction of the price that you would have been paying when it was the latest and greatest. Absolutely. No, that's, I mean, you nailed it right on the, on the head. And, you know, we always often joke with customers, we're like, well, I'm trying to decide between this and this, and, you know, it'd be hundreds of dollars of difference. And, you know, again, we don't make anything. There's not an editor's bow, so we get to kind of give an honest evaluation of what we think you might want to buy. And my brother, uh, Len Edder, who, who started this company and I, with me, we, I couldn't tell you how many times we've emailed customers back and say, why don't you buy the less expensive bow and buy $400 worth of Khmer deer pellets and I guarantee you you're going to get a hell of a lot more deer spending half your money on Khmer deer than you will on a more expensive bow you know and it's uh, when you put it that way the customer are like oh my god you're kind of right now I'm not saying everyone should be baiting but it kind of puts it in perspective like is that extra 500 bucks going to get you more deer when you could spend it in food plots you could spend it in you know a new tree stand, so you have two trees hang up, you know, uh, instead of one, well, and now you you've spend, got both you could, angles current. Yeah, you could spend it's, it and join a hunting lease or something like that and have a better place to hunt. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it is, I think that's a big, big issue, and I think, I think, you know, and again, but there's there's some guys who they, they'll spend and have plenty of money, and it's, it's not an issue. But I think for the middle range of all of us, there there should be a little bit more attention spent to to price uh, sensitive uh, products, and, and, and so yeah. So so listen. So transitioning, right? You had said something a couple minutes ago about you know, well, archery sales, you know, go up 
when the economy is down because people have more time, you know, so it's this inverse relationship. And so that got me thinking about your current venture because I was thinking, you know, there's one product line that does really good when the economy's great and it does really good when the economy stinks. And that's because when things are going really well, you got to celebrate. And when things are going really, really crappy, you got to commiserate. And either way, you need some alcohol to either celebrate or commiserate and so you guys went out and if you didn't have enough to do already with your two bow hunting e-commerce sites you started your own spirits company called drop time tell me about that buddy yeah well it's really we were i couldn't be more excited about it uh we launched a couple months ago we have a drop time vodka and a drop time persimmon moonshine um which by the way is really good i've been sipping it a little bit in the interest of full disclosure to our listeners dave did send me a bottle of the vodka and the moonshine and um i've been sipping the moonshine a little bit not on work hours dave mind you but in in the comfort of my own home uh and it's 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 been quite good research (laughs) well it was really really neat the way we came up with it because the drop time moonshine which is persimmon and apple uh basically a corn whiskey, which is the basis of a moonshine, is usually unaged corn whiskey, and then we infuse it with persimmon and apples. And it came about totally randomly. My brother and I were talking about the best food plots and food sources for deer, and my brother's kind of saying, look, anytime I find standing corn in the late season, that's where I find the deer, you know, and uh, kind of getting in on corn. And I was saying, well, I'm as lazy as it gets. Uh, so I don't like to have to plant food plots every year. And I also happen to have sat next to persimmon trees and apple trees. And when one fruit falls, the deer will come running. And I have a spot upstate by a, by an apple tree where you could set up near it and then throw a rock. And when the rock hit the ground, deer would come running. That's how just fired up they are to eat apples and persimmon. And I thought, you know... Those things you don't have to plant every year either. So I was kind of suggesting, why don't you start planting some of those trees? Because that'll come back every year for you. Mm-hmm. And my brother's like, you know, you take apples and persimmon, put them in some kind of whiskey drink. Uh, that'd be pretty damn delicious. And we're like, yeah, that'd be drop time moonshine, just kind of jokingly. Like, it was just just conversation. And then we really started thinking about, you know, a deer has the most taste buds uh, of any wild game, I think, in North America. And it turns out what they love to, to eat is also going to make an incredibly good drink. And it probably would have just been two brothers goofing, but uh, not more than a week later, I met an old friend uh, who mentioned that she had invested in a distillery. And I said, that's kind of a strange coincidence. I was just thinking about how could we possibly make this kind of persimmon moonshine and she said well come on up and meet the guys and met them hit it off and took about two years of trial and error uh to try to get the right flavor profile to make it work um and uh, we finally did and we thought that it's just a delicious drink and it was really unique and we thought it's authentic to the outdoors and, and true to deer and we love the name Drop Time Moonshine. Drop Time, something like one in a million deer have a Drop Time. And it's this imperfection that makes it somehow more perfect. And it's sort of like a handcrafted spirit where, where you know, uh, it's incredibly rare. It takes a lot to go into it. And, and we really think this is now better than perfect. And it's, it's a really delicious drink. It took, I mean, it took forever to get real organic sources of persimmon to be able to infuse in it. And um, anyway, we're really excited by it. And then in the process of making it, talking to the distiller and learning more and more about different spirits and and just really loved the corn aspect of it because it, it is such a sweet kind of basis of anything. And I said, well, can we, couldn't we make a corn vodka? I mean, inherently, sweet corn should just be sweeter than a potato or a wheat. And he said, absolutely, we can do a corn, uh, corn-based corn vodka. And 
So we said, let's do a drop time vodka as well. And I said, well, how do we make it? How do we make vodka better than it is, right? It's distilled to almost pure alcohol and cut down to 80%. And we're making it from this sweet corn. It's going to be as sweet as any vodka out there. But how do we make it better? And he said, well, it's expensive, but we can get these carbon activated filters we can try to run it through. And it will really take the edge off of it. And as a hunter, you know, you hear carbon activated. Uh, that's what we use to keep our scent away. And it's, uh, we got to try that. And mm-hmm. so we, it was just one of those things like, let's try it. And we ran it through these filters. And after about three times through these carbon filters, it was now not just the sweetest vodka, but the smoothest vodka too. It's kind of the front end, the back end of it. And so we were really happy about it. And we came up with that. And now we're in the process of aging a bourbon, which is bourbon is primarily a corn-based uh, whiskey. And we're aging that, and that'll be next. And it's been a really fun thing. And we're basically marketing it just like our e-commerce businesses online. It's only available online at droptime.com now. And um, How did you guys get droptime.com? Somebody had well, to have that. Well, when you've been in the industry, like I said, I've got crossbows.com too. I've been doing this before anyone knew to be on the internet. So it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, it's actually, it's, it's not impressive that I have drop time. It's actually unimpressive that I didn't buy, you know, JP Morgan Chase before they did. Cause that's how long I've been doing it, right? You hear the stories of the guy who buys Citibank with Solomon and City Burge or something. He's buying hunting domain names. So <laughs> every now and then I'm impressed with myself. And then uh, my wife's like, really? What is it more impressive to have, you know, shopping.com? And I'm like, ah, I should have thought about that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, you've got, uh, not only is the, is the, um, the product really good. You've got cool packaging. You've got cool logo, cool bottling. Uh, it really is sharp. I mean, I encourage people who are listening, go to droptime.com and see the, you know, it's not just, it's not just good liquor. It's good branding and, and, and really positioned for the, the sportsman. So I, yeah. I commend you guys on that. Well, I appreciate it. We had, we actually, kind of cool, we didn't even put an announcement out yet, but there's a, uh, it's a tasting competition called the SIP Awards out in California, which is the largest of the consumer tasting uh, awards. Uh-huh. And uh, the vodka just won a gold medal at that, so we're extremely excited about it because it's one thing for us to say, hey, we worked really hard to make something taste good, and, you know, we think corn should be sweeter, and this filter works really great, and it is smoother, and we're going to tell people, but, uh, you know, to get to get a gold medal in the very first awards uh, that we submitted it to was pretty, pretty awesome. And, uh, and when I started to do it, I had talked to another friend's friend who does a lot in spirits, and he said, look, you can come up with a really cool-looking bottle, which I'm sure you're going to, that appeals to your customers, and maybe you'll get them to buy it once. But don't ever forget that taste is everything when you do this because, you know, you, you could sell everyone one bottle and you're not in the real business. You've got to get people to come back, and that's why we spent so many two full years developing the taste of the persimmon moonshine and, and really spending the extra money to make the vodka better because it is a cool bottle, like you see, and it's a great design, and we want it to look like a trophy and feel like a trophy on your wall just like a, a deer would be. But when you drink it and when you serve it, it's the best stuff out there. Uh, And like you say, it's available only online, and it's probably because, well, for a variety of reasons, uh, but but not the least of which is it's probably only able to be made in fairly limited quantities. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, literally every bottle of both the vodka and the moonshine... I held the bottle up. Like it was inspecting every bottle, putting it through the line. I made, poured the ferment, I mean, the, the sugar in while we were fermenting the, uh, the mash. I mean, every step of the way, and it is a small, uh, a small process. And it's also, you know, our spirits are not inexpensive because they are handcrafted and a lot goes into them. 
But if we were to try to sell them in every state, trying to get distribution and, and everyone wants you to uh, pay for tastings and have somebody at the liquor store giving out samples and this and that, it's so expensive. I would actually have to charge twice what we charge if we were trying to go through the normal distribution route for the spirits. So, um, you know, it, and again, uh, the world is changing. Internet more, you know, people, 10 years ago, no one bought a spirit online. But people are buying them online now. Yeah. Uh, well, I tell you what, Dave, it's awesome. I mean, you talk about a renaissance man. So this has been Peterson's Bowhunting Radio with, with Dave Etter, a, a former associate editor at Peterson's Bowhunting, uh, uh, owner of... of uh, Edders.com and, and bowhuntingoutlet.com, a, a, a retailer and craft distiller, a little bit of yeah. everything, and, bow, and, and and avid bow hunter and uh, a father, a family man, a little bit. I mean, really, a man for the ages, Dave. Well, I appreciate it, but I will. I, I'm going to give credit to where credit is due, and also advice to anyone who's kind of into the outdoors, which was getting done with college. I didn't know where to go. I knew I loved hunting and fishing, and I wanted to do it, but I, you know, it's like, kind of like, what do I do? And my father said, just get started. I don't care what you make, get started doing it though, now. I mean, he was almost angry in it, but he wasn't saying go get a job that makes a lot, just get something and get started. And I called up Outdoor Life Magazine, and I said, I just graduated college. I've been hunting and fishing my whole life. I'm an English major. I'd like to work for you guys for free. And they said, well, sure. And they hired me in for a free internship. And I show up for work the first day, and the girl says, well, we just found out, actually, since you've graduated college, we can't use you for free. We actually have to pay you. And that's how I got my job. And it, who knew where it would go? I mean, it was just get started. If you like the outdoors and you want to be a part of it. And you, again, I didn't want to do retail. I wanted to do an online magazine, but I started something. And who knows where the spirits business. But if you love the outdoors, just get started. And it takes you to cool places like you sitting on the dream job of Peterson's bow hunting editor. It's, it, you just got to get started. Yeah, well, exactly. And my story, which we don't have time to get into today, similarly, you know, disjointed though i mean the 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 starting point and the destination you know couldn't have been more different but like you say you don't know where life will lead but you just that great advice man because just you got to get started you got to start going down the road you know you just got to start going down the road you don't know where it's going but you got to go you got to go yes so awesome man dave thank you so much for being with us today that was i tell you what that was probably one of the most unique interviews that I've ever done for the podcast. I don't, we've never had anybody quite like you, a man of your varied skills uh, on the show before. So I hope uh, everyone who listens enjoys it as much as I have. Well, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time and it's just awesome to reconnect with Peterson. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll run into each other in the woods one of these days. Oh, that's it. I was going to say, now that we're reconnected, we've got to make sure that we bump into each other in a deer camp somewhere so we can go out and enjoy some good hunting and then we can come back to the lodge and warm our feet by the fire with a glass of drop time moonshine. I hope so. Thanks so much, Christian. You got it, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com. 